and welcome everybody to uh, another, uh, I think it's episode uh, 3010 of the Bangers and Classics podcast. That's with me, James Rupper, and him, uh, David Malloy. And um, that was some party last week, wasn't it, David, at uh, Kenny's? It was indeed, yes. I mean, I'm still recovering from it. I mean, I don't know how you got home. They, t- they t- pour you into the sleigh that was waiting outside for you. Well, there you go. I, I think it was just the size of Kenny's garden that got me. It was absolutely huge, but there you go. Was that a garden? I thought it was a county. No, well, there you go. Anyway, James, yes, yeah. uh, 3,010 a podcast odyssey, is it? Yeah, something like that. It might yes. even be more than that. I don't know. I've, yes. I've lost all sense of, of uh, time now, David, with these uh, podcasts. I've just lost all sense, basically. Have you? Oh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, we must say thank you to Kenny anyway for his hospitality. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Carlet one, I must say a couple of words about that. The yeah. Alpha 6 mm. is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, yeah it was, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. There's very few of those left. I think that's the only one on the road in the UK. It's the only mm. one that was licensed anyway. Yeah. There are a few on Sorn. They only made about 12,000 Alpha 6s, but mm. the car in the photograph is a phase one, which is the prettier. They obviously Alpha <laughs> give it a makeover and they didn't improve it, unfortunately. It's a trick Renault seemed to have specialised in Alpha also uh, went down that line. Mm. But it's the very first incarnation of the Busso engine. Yeah which was a longitudinal 12-valve engine in that installation. And it eventually ended up a transversely mounted 24-valve engine. And it's probably, at least in my opinion, the greatest motoring engine ever made for a road car. I'm biased because I've had one, but mm. they are that good. The sound they make is just, well, it's sublime. Moving on to slightly more somber matters. Yeah. Uh, we lost somebody this week in the world of motoring, and particularly motor racing. We lost one of its favourite sons, Frank Williams. What can you say about Frank Williams, James? I mean, great personal fortitude. He became a quadriplegic after a car crash, returning from a testing session. He was driving a Ford Sierra, it left the road, and unfortunately, poor Frank sustained life-changing injuries, which he dealt with with remarkable fortitude. What's your thoughts on Frank Williams? Well, I, I mean, yes, I mean, you, you can focus on the on the sad parts, but I, I do remember at the time uh, that he did say that um, he'd lived sort of most of his life in one way and now he was going to live it in another and uh, that was mm. a, uh, quite an incredible uh, way I don't know whether I could be as uh, relaxed about it as that and maybe uh, maybe inside he wasn't but at least he thought well I'm not going to let this change what I'm doing I mean a lot of people would but there, there you go you know the team went on to greater things so mm. you know what a marvelous example to everyone never mind uh, the engineering genius that he was but I, I know that you know all the background David well, apparently that's what he said to his wife. I've had mm. 40 years of one kind of life, yeah. now going to have 40 years of another. Mm. And he very nearly made it to 80. He mm. was 79. Yeah. And I believe may have been the world's oldest quadriplegic, oh, which right. speaks volumes. From mm. um, As a young man, he was a racer. He lived in a flat in London with some very colourful characters from the racing community. Uh, one of whom was Piers Courage, who was a scion of the Courage Brewing family. And he and Frank became very close friends. Frank and he into a Formula 2 team, started a team, Frank ran him in Formula 1, finished second in the Monaco Grand Prix. Unfortunately, uh, Piers Courage was killed in an accident in 1970, which obviously devastated Frank because they were very, very close friends. But he, he continued, he ran his own F1 team. Uh, money was very, very tight. At one stage, the uh, phone in the factory was cut off for non-payment and they had to use a telephone box down the road to take incoming and outgoing calls. Money arrived in the form of Walter Wolfe, but frankly, Williams found himself really just being a team manager rather than a team owner. So he walked away and started a new team, which was Williams Grand Prix Engineering, along with a chap called Patrick Head, who was a genius designer. And rapidly, they moved up the order. Um, 1979, they really made the big breakthrough. I was there at Silverstone the day in 1979 
when Clay Riggers on a one Williams Grand Prix Engineering's first Grand Prix. It should have been Alan Jones who was running away with it, but his car broke down. And for the next few years, certainly between uh, 79 and 82, uh, the Williams was the car to have. And then you had a fallow period. But then, obviously, came 86. You had Mansell and PK in the team. What a team that was. Frank Williams had his car crash that season. But the team remarkably went on to even greater things. Mansell won a title, obviously, later on. PK won at 87. Prost won a title. Jacques Villeneuve, Damon Hill, Ayrton Senna drove for the team. And Juan Pablo Montoya, Ralph Schumacher. They all went through the team uh, in the space of you know, quite a few years. But Williams was a very competitive, very strong team. It had fallow periods. It always came back. But from the mid-2000s onwards, it did struggle. There was one last hurrah when Pastor Maldonado uh, won, I think it was the Spanish Grand Prix, in 2012. Frank then decided to step back and let his daughter teach, effectively, day-to-day charge of the team, and that uh, the team was obviously sold. But it still bears his name. Yeah, His triumphs when the team were incredible. He, he and Patrick Head were the driving forces behind that team. They built it from the ground up and turned it into a powerhouse. There's one great story, though, I'll we'll share before we, we move on. Uh, Alan Jones was the first superstar Williams driver, as it were. They, they took a bit of a punt on him. He was a good driver, but he hadn't really had significant success when he went to Williams, and he excelled there. He became a, one of the finest F1 drivers in the world. And his attitude, his straight-talking, down-to-earth Australian manner, fitted the team well. He became a template for Williams drivers. And many years later, David Coulthard drove for Williams, and he tells a story about being told by, I think it was Patrick Head, to drive more like Alan. And he thought he meant Alan Cross, who had driven for the team. But no, it was Alan Jones. He wanted them to be a bit more beaten to a veg, get up and go, get on with the job, get it done. Um, and that was it. Somewhere about Frank Williams, I'd simply say this. He was a racer's racer. I don't think there's any higher tribute that can be paid to him because I think that's how he would want to be remembered. Yeah, very well said, David. Moving on to perhaps a less sombre topic. Is there any word in the Caroline Monroe situation? Uh, no, David. Um, obviously, I'm waiting for um, feedback uh, on on this. But, um, you know, she's a very busy lady. She's got a lot, lot of things on. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, uh, um, you know, come the time and the place, obviously, I will uh, take the Mini Cooper back to uh, a reminder of, uh, uh, you know, many, many years ago. So, uh, no, not at the moment. But uh, <clears throat> I found that uh, Talking Bits TV have got quite a lot on their plate. You know, they're running a TV station and there's only... You know, yeah. three of them. So uh, uh, they've got they've got tons to do. We could help them out. <laughs> well, we could do, but it's, uh, <laughs> but I mean, there's just one person who runs this podcast, and that, you know, and that's quite a lot on your shoulders, David. So um, you know, you can imagine what it would be like running a TV station, even yeah. though you have proposed uh, the bangers and classics. Um, you know, um, radio station, the bangers classics. Uh, you know, TV. Uh, and the Bangers and Classics news, newspaper, but they will all they will all occur in time. I and the film studios, yeah, and the film studios, absolutely. Racing team, yeah. Car manufacturing, yeah. Yeah, ice cream. We're going to make yeah. ice cream as well. We've got to do yeah. that. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but going back to Caroline Renault, maybe yeah. you should maybe you should offer to take the Innocenti. She's probably never been an Innocenti before. Maybe not. Yeah, no. just just a thought. Okay. Anyways, moving on to car spots. I've got a couple yeah. this week. Uh, I saw the garish green local MX-5 with the bizarre wrap and the hardtop. One headlamp seems permanently to be in the raised position. Uh, it's got less ground clearance than the snake's dangly bits, but it is actually being used on the road. So congratulations to who that is. You're clearly a very brave man, sir. That's all I'm saying, because there was no ground clearance on that car whatsoever. Anyway, moving on to more acceptable to me cars. <laughs> Um, I saw two very contrasting Triumph Spitfires, uh, both in driveways. One mm. was a rusty yellow one with a rusty hardtop, 
that will need a fair bit of work to get back to the road if it's ever going to. But by way of contrast, there was a very nice red one, also with a hardtop, in another driveway. Um, and that one does seem to be in use. And it does look in spiffing condition. I also saw a Mark II MR2 in a driveway. Uh, again, I think it needs a bit of work to go back on the roads. Its uh, red paintwork was very faded, which reminds me of the Lotus Elan M100, which was available in a colour called Calypso Red. But the first paint formulation, because I think they changed suppliers, did fade. And why I now know that colour, not as Calypso Red, but as Collapso Red. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of similar situation with that. It really is very faded. But um, it did seem to be intact. It seemed to be not too much rust, of, if any, protruding. Um, no holes, etc. No really big, ugly rust blemishes. So perhaps it could be returned to the road. Don't know what it's like underneath, of course. No. So what about you? Well, David, for you, um, uh, a Lotus, uh, a Lotus Elan, uh, uh, one of the uh, M100 ones. And I knew it was one of those because it took up all of the road as it came towards me. Because obviously it's a... Uh, it's, they're extremely wide, um, so it was quite nice to see. There was a there was an Aston Martin behind it, so I don't know if there was some sort of um, I don't know uh, if there was something go, going on there. But it was uh, two interesting cars in one. Mm. But uh, it's always very nice to see uh, an Elan. Uh, as I say, it may live in Norfolk, but you actually don't see that many Lotus Eye mm. uh, around. So that was uh, very good, and obviously it made me think of you, David. So it's always that's yeah. always good. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. a pleasure. Um, otherwise, uh, on the banger front, um, I was followed around for most of the day, it seemed to be, but, uh, by a Ford Escort uh, Fordal, um, uh, uh, 1991 on, on a J, which, uh, I don't think would be, you know, the best, the best time for those, but, um, no, it was in, it was in decent condition. There was no rust on it and it was being used as a daily driver. And, uh, when I did see the driver, yeah, he was, uh, on the ancient side, so he'd obviously had it from new, I would uh, uh, assume. But um, yeah, he was uh, using it properly. It had uh, you know a full complement of uh, plastic wheel trims uh, as well. Uh, it was a it was a fairly basic uh, model, uh, like an LX or something. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a car being used, which is always mm. good. And then finally, uh, another car you don't see very often, certainly with uh, four doors and not a tailgate, is um, a Volvo S70. And uh, that seemed in quite tidy condition, but again, uh, a car regularly being used, and it was uh, good good to see it that uh, it hadn't been swept away in some uh, part exchange or uh, uh, you know other other deal to take older cars off the road. So um, yeah, two bangers and a classic. So that's not too bad from my end. Yeah, a couple of scrappy scheme survivors by the sound of mm, it. I'd have said so. Yeah. I mean, the, the Escort obviously must have been a spiffing condition, what you're describing. It probably was owned by that chap from New. Yeah, I just said so. Yeah, you can imagine mm. that some people do that. They get cars mm. and they do look after them ever so well. And you know, my hat goes off to them for doing so. Yeah. I always wish I could do that. <laughs> I've never actually bought a brand new car now I think about it. No. No. No, well, that goes for both of us, uh, David. So, yeah, uh, yeah we, don't, we, we don't need uh, brand new cars when there's bangers and classics about. Absolutely not. No. Mm. The, the, the trouble is, most of the classics I bought turned into bangers. How oh, do they? Yeah. <laughs> It seems that way sometimes, yeah, but that's another story. Anyway, on that note, we shall take a break. You're listening to the Bangers and Classics podcast, presented by James Santa Ruppert and David Rudolph Malloy. And we are back after that break, and we're going to jump into this week's Banger or Classic segment. Then we're going to talk about a car that came out in 1991, and it's gone through the generations and indeed is still with us. It's the Renault Clear, but specifically we're dealing with the first generation. So, James, 
Nicola Papa, bang or a classic? Uh, it's a classic, I think, David. Um, it's certainly a banger. Uh, I don't know whether it's being appreciated as a classic at all, and I, I don't think you have to go down the uh, uh, Williams route um, uh, at all, which is which is quite um, uh, uh, funny that we're mentioning that. But, um, mm. you know, I think you can look at the more basic ones. You can look at the uh, Monaco versions, wasn't there? There was uh, def- definitely one mm-hmm. of those, wasn't there? Um, but it's what the French do best and what Renault used to do extremely well was, was, uh, uh, small cars. And, mm. uh, that is a very good small car. And you would think after Renault five, very hard act to follow, but actually, when, uh, and actually they ran together, didn't they for a while, because you could get, yeah. you could get both models. You got the, what was the basic, uh, Renault five called I can't campus. Remember. Yeah, that's it. He yeah. kept campus for a few years, but yeah. uh, but no, I mean it was a it was a move on, and it was just it was a very very uh, good small car, which is actually what most people need. Um, and actually, and obviously it was better than the Renault Five in some respects because you you got a couple of extra doors if you wanted them, so that was always yeah. good. Um, no, I was more of a fan of the uh, Five, to be honest. I have to mm. say, in the Clio, yeah. um, I did go to look at a Clio to buy one day. It was a sixteen valve Clio, yeah. I went to look at it, and I couldn't get comfortable in it. Um, the 19 seat you could rotate effectively. Mm. It hit. It, it could. You could pivot it. You couldn't do that in the 16 valve Clio, and that was it. Not yeah. interested from that moment onwards. The other thing with the Clios, and indeed the 19s, was as I recall, it, they had a nasty habit of snapping the clutch cables. There was a cable-operated clutch, and the clutch cables would snap. It happened in my 19. I remember that. And I seem to recall it was quite a big problem in Cleos for a little while. The cables would just suddenly snap and uh, you would have to drive to the garage uh, being very careful, making clutchless changes because you need no alternative. Mm. You go back to 1991, you go back to the, the sequence of adverts and a couple of comedy legends appeared in the final advert. Do you remember who they were, James, out of interest? No, it wasn't multiple wise, but... Uh, no, you're close. <laughs> you're not that far away. Uh, Reeves uh, and Mortimer. Reason multiple. Oh, right. Yeah, I won't say any more. You should you should check it out, mm. or if you want, you can you can buy my most recent book. The story's told there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, mini plug, mini plug. The thing about those um, ads is they were filmed obviously starting in ninety one, mm. and it makes you feel when you realise that the young lady who played Nicole in it is now thirty years older than that. I'm not going to say what age she is because I actually do know mm. it's bad manners to reveal a lady's age, but. You know, you do start to feel a little bit more venerable when you think to those first ads and you can remember the ad and you think, blimey, that was three decades ago. I don't know about you, James. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the past is uh, another country, David. And uh, <laughs> uh, as you know, I'm a great believer in time travel. And uh, you, you, know, you can do that. You can do that in your head um, mm. or just or just thinking young. Um, just mm-hmm. uh, don't uh, pay attention to what's in the mirror. Uh, and just carry on with your life. And uh, I don't read the mirror, so I'm not worried no. about that. No, no, no. no. Anyway, back to the Clio. Yeah, uh, a bit underwhelming for me. I didn't think it was as cute as these as a second generation five. Mm. Yeah, you had the Williams version, which I wasn't again a great fan of, simply because it really couldn't fit properly into the blooming thing. Mm. Um, so I was much happier with my 19. But going on an objective basis, and that's yeah, it's it is, it is a classic. I'll have to give it that much. Uh, but I still wouldn't want to own one simply because I couldn't fit in it properly. Mm. If I could, then it'd probably be a very different story. Well, you know, certain cars aren't designed for freaks of nature, David. I think that's something you have to accept. Uh-huh. 
Well, that still excludes me, though, old son. <laughs> you know, shocking, shocking thing to say. Mm. I'm mortally, mortally offended here. Yeah, no. yes. I'm going to go and cry in my big pillow now. <laughs> there's a there's a film reference there, but I don't know if anybody will get that one. Well, I didn't. So there you go. Ah, I'll have to explain it later. I'll tell you later. Yes, yeah. if you remind me. <laughs> anyway, moving on and. Talking about films, actually, that's a bit of a link. We've been talking about Christmas presents recently, and you very wisely last time around brought up the concept of films to watch at Christmas. Mm, yeah. And we talked about that. Well, well, is there any great car films to watch at Christmas or any great films that feature cars? And of course, there were loads. And I thought of three. The first one is Full Throttle. It's from 1995. It's a BBC production that starred Rowan Atkinson as Tim Birkin. Mm. who was a Bentley boy and a winner of Le Mans. I think he won it twice. It made a low budget, but very enjoyable. And Rowan Atkinson was very good in it, I have to say. The only problem is it's not available on DVD at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you can track down a copy somewhere, but if you can, it's certainly worth spending some time with. It's, it's very enjoyable. With a big budget, I don't know if they'd have done it any better, to be honest. That's the problem. You know, it, They captured the feel of it, the feel of the era, and Atkinson really did play uh, Tim Birkin very well. You know, it's for me, it's just ideal. Second one is, mm. you might like this one, James Caravan yeah. to the Car. Mm. It's from 1974. It's a thriller based on an Alistair McLean story, but McLean himself apparently wasn't too keen in the film to the extent that he didn't turn up to the premiere. But this is it. I think I mentioned this before. Graham Hill is in it as a helicopter pilot. Mm. <laughs> How bizarre is that? Graham Hill is a helicopter pilot. Because I was watching a, a clip of it the other day, it was I was just I was actually looking for some information about the helicopter for something else I was doing. And I thought, blimey, that looks like Graham Hill. I thought, that is Graham Hill. Why is he playing a helicopter pilot? I haven't found the answer yet, but it's definitely him. Beyond that, there's also a gorgeous, very early Fiat X19, the few scenes near the start, and that's well worth looking at. You just think, what a striking little car it was. And again, that was an affordable sports car, James. We talked about yeah. these things before. That you know, you can have a sports car. It was good in fuel. It was fast enough for what you needed. It was very stylish. What more do you want for your young man? Really? Exactly. Yeah. And the last one mm. is, of course, I've got to mention it's the Italian job, mm. not the two thousand and three aberration, but the nineteen sixty nine original. Um, you've seen it before. We've all seen it. But there's tons of stuff to look out for. It's Crystal Palace circuit. There's the now no longer existing DER house, the bus. And I think I mentioned this before, but if I haven't, um, did you know, James, that the bus mm. ended its life being used as a school bus in Scotland? No, I didn't. Although the bus also is supposed to have ended up in my mate's uh, uh, sort of the back of his yard. And he, he was a mini specialist. He said, oh, you, you do realise that's the bus from uh, the Italian job. And I thought, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Is, but that would have been that would have been in the middle 1990s do you know when it was being used as a school bus i think it seemed to i think it expired about the middle 90s yeah uh, it was scrapped um yeah. well, that, was well a, maybe maybe he scrapped it then i'll have to ask him i think it was scrapped up in scotland it was in the east coast somewhere mm. uh, i've seen photographs of the bus yeah. it was a bus company that owned it they didn't use it exclusively as a school bus but it was used for the school run but i have seen photographs of it in mm. its then livery it's a damn shame, really. I mean, the I think somebody eventually realised what it was, but it was mm. too late. It was it was too far gone. Yeah, to save. Uh, but imagine that being taken to school and the the bus from the Italian job. How amazing would that have been? 
Well, can you imagine all the people who would pay um, cash money um, to go mm. on the bangers and classics tour in the uh, Italian job um, bus? You know, we take yeah. them around the sites. And, this is uh, why you're the commercial supremo, James. Yeah. You know all these things. It was one more thing from the film. The Aston Martin later appeared in an episode of the Benny Hill Show, and it's still around today, mm. uh, turns into a Lancia. It's a very, very clever disguise. But if you actually use your freeze frame and your sort of step advance on the DVD player, you will spot it. So there you go. Three films for Christmas. What about you, James? I've I've only got one, David, um, because that's me. Uh, But I reached into my uh, own personal library and I pulled out uh, Repo Man. I don't know if you've ever seen Repo Man. I've got Repo Man, yes. You've got Repo Man. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, well, I... I can't believe that anybody who doesn't sort of slightly like cars doesn't hasn't heard of this, but uh, it's a very good film. It's, a, it's an indie film. It's from 1984. It's directed by Alex Cox, mm. um, and it's uh, got Emilio Estevez in it, but mainly it's got Harry Dean Stanton in it, who's fantastic. And uh, yeah, they're they're repo men, repoing cars. So it's um it's the dirty underbelly of. Uh, uh, Los Angeles, where they're um, taking cars, and they repossess one car, which is a Chevy Malibu, which has a secret in the boot. Mm. And um, it's uh, it's quite hard to ex- to explain the plot, really. Um, you know, Emilio's a, a punk. It's probably the best film he ever did, I, I would say. Um, and it's it's quite interesting. I I think one of the most fascinating uh, facts I found out is that um, uh, all the products in the home uh, are just they look like value products. So it's got like cornflakes is just written in big writing, and you know Coke is just written on on it. So it's all you know big printed letters, and you think oh that's some clever um you know sort of uh, comment on consumer society but actually it was apparently all down to the fact they tried to get sponsorship from uh, people who supplied these things and they couldn't get sponsorship so as a sort of a sodju they just thought oh we'll just put yeah bread on bread and tea or you know coffee on coffee so that's what it was and uh but it says that there's a lot to enjoy in the film and uh yeah if you've never heard of it you you will be in for a treat it is a bit weird mm. uh, but it is wonderful I, th- I think it's very well shot and uh, it's got a Chevy Malibu in it, and there's a few other Chevys in yeah. it. A lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of old crappy cars, really American cars. But uh, there's an awful lot to uh, enjoy in it as well. Yeah. It's a funny thing. It is a strange film. I mm. I saw it back in the '80s when I was a teenager. Yeah, and didn't like it. Mm. Then about three years ago, it was a, it was for sale in the shop, so I bought a copy, sat down, and thought this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go your taste can change mm. perhaps i just didn't appreciate what it was getting at yeah at the time um all the nuances in it but it's just a film just sit down enjoy yeah it's mad but so what life's mad and alex cox you might have heard of him um obviously as a director film director he did various things i think one about sid and nancy as well yeah that's right yeah but he for a generation might remember him as a host of movie drone on bbc2 oh, back true. in the day mm. Yeah, and it was thanks to Alex Cox showing Assault and Precinct 13 that I became aware of it, saw mm. it for the first time. Um, so I'm that much. He didn't like Assault and Precinct 13, of course, and I absolutely love it. But there you have it. He still introduced me to it through his TV programme, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. So we shall move on then and take another break. This is the Bangers and Classics podcast, presented by a proper motoring journalist, and a complete chancer. And we are back. And we're going to use the time machine that Mr. Ruppert spoke about earlier oh, on to go back to films. Because James wants to tell us about a film he thinks is great for Christmas 
I don't know the film, but I'm going to check it out and I would recommend that you do so as well because he's seldom wrong about these things. I don't know. I'm wrong about most things. Um, but uh, it's not a particularly Christmassy film. Um, but uh, uh, it's in a way, it's sort of a comment about uh, modern modern times, you can. Mm. But it's, it stars Peter Cook and it's called The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. And it's a, it's a fantastic slice of uh, late 60s um, sort of stuff, really. I mean, the, the film is rich in detail. Arthur Lowe's in it. Uh, John Cleese is in it. Um, there's actually uh, another Hammer Horror uh, uh, actress that I can uh, try and bother, which is Va- Valerie Leon is in it. Um, Blimey. And, uh, yeah, and basically it's it's actually it's probably it's his best part, Peter Cook. Peter Cook should have made loads more films, um, but he was he's definitely the star of this um, in, in so many ways. But he, he just he plays a PR man who basically becomes... Um, uh, uh, sort of in charge of uh, Britain, <laughs> uh, which is uh, very strange when you consider the trajectory of um, people in modern politics. But the great thing about it is that there's lots of um, late sixties detail. You, uh, there are cars in it. There's uh, old Rolls Royce in it, uh, FX4 taxis and stuff like that. Great uh, street scenes as we always enjoy. Um, but it's just the quality of the writing in it, um, and it's yes, I say it's got all the all the great people from. Uh, that sort of era. You even got Harold Pinter is in it as well. Graham Chapman's in it. Uh, Ronnie Corbett's in it uh, as as well. So they all sort of pop up. Uh, but there's sort of, sort of fantastic street scenes there. And as I say, it's a it's a comment on uh, modern life really. But they sort of predicted um, sort of how uh, I suppose stupid we would become. You know, if somebody says the right things, we'll go and vote for them. Uh, but it's Peter Cook at his very best. He's, he's quite aloof in it. Um, he's not cracking jokes all all the time, but he's he's being sort of fairly evil. Um, in many ways, he's the Bond villain that uh, we should have had. So the rise and rise of Michael Rimmer. I bought it on CD a few years ago, and I would hope it's still uh, available on DVD anyway. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's one. If you haven't seen it, uh, David, I may well post you this one. No, 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 I'll, I'll find a copy, James, thank you. Okay. <clears throat> no, Peter Cook, oh, yes, what a man mm. he was. Yeah. Very, very interesting character indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't make films like that anymore. Uh, no. You look at the cast in that film, James, yeah. wow. Mm. It's the cream of British comedy talent by the sound of it. Yeah, no, it is. Every, which, everyone's in it, everyone. And again, that's an era when there were a lot of funny people about and script writers came up with genuinely funny scripts. Sometimes, yeah, they were a little bit contrived. Sometimes they were out there. But they always got a chuckle. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. They knew how to make people laugh. And making people laugh is a great gift. Uh, people laugh at me, but that's laughing at me, not with me. So no, we're, go, right. we're not going to go there either. No. Just for today. <laughs> no. I mean, if we were going to talk about Peter Cook, I, again, I can only recommend the original Bedazzled. Uh, there was a, another Bedazzled a few years ago, but uh, the original Bedazzled is an exceptional film, um, if you ever get a chance to find it. Uh, there may be cars in that as well, actually. Um, and Eleanor Bron. So there you go. All right. Frankie. Oh, and Dud- <laughs> Dudley Moore. <laughs> and it's mainly, yes. it's mainly Dudley Moore pursuing Eleanor Bron. Uh, with uh, Peter Cook as the devil. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, old Dudley Moore. He was yeah. in a film when I was a lad, um, which bizarrely I think got an X certificate, uh, which meant it was suitable for people of 18. There was nothing in it <sighs> to make it suitable for 18 year olds. I don't know why it got an X, but a bunch of us from school, we were about 16, we sneaked into it. Mm. Uh, you know, back in the glory days, <laughs> that was the height of our revolution. Yeah. You know? <laughs> We're, we're going to revolt against society by sneaking into a film that we're too young to see illegally. Yeah. Uh, 
we did that a couple of times. I think, I think we went to see Stripes as well when we were too young to see a Bill Murray film and, and got away with it. So that was it. We probably thought we were striking some sort of great blow uh, against the man, but <laughs> instead we were sneaking in to see films that we weren't supposed to. So, yes. Anyway, don't stay in the subject of films. This chap's been, we're going to talk about, or not we're going to talk about, rather. Mm. There's been a few films. It's an antique stealer from East Anglia. Oh, right. And, and he's not Lovejoy, and he's definitely not played by Ian McShane. Mm. Okay, he's been asked to point that out. Yeah. Um, though I do have a mate who looks like a less craggy Ian McShane as Lovejoy. He really does. It's the guy I was at school with. Yeah. Um, if you imagine a less craggy Lovejoy, mm. that's my mate. I better not say his name, because he works for a very high-powered company, and he'd probably send the boys around to me mm. or something like that. Anyway, this chap, this uh, unnamed East Anglian antique stealer, has asked us, in the politest possible terms, to find a suitable classic car in which to transport his wares to the auction house. And as he put it, it must be classy, reliable, and no, not too bad in fuel. He's got £10,000 of other people's money, I think, to spend on it. Mm. So um, I come up with something, but I no doubt you're better at it, so I want to hear from you first. Oh, I don't think so, David. I've, uh, as usual, completely misunderstood the brief um, uh, and gone down a, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a very bizarre route mm. but um antique dealers david always used to have volvos i don't know if you mm. realize that but uh, that's what they used to have i mean obviously in in real life actually antique dealers have panel vans and luton vans because otherwise they wouldn't get anything in um but yeah in the old days they had volvos and uh as we know they were quite capacious uh, all the seats uh, went flat and uh, you could get a fair amount in the back actually and the volvo v70 is very good. Um, I have owned a Volvo V70, which was uh, very good and had lots of room in it. Um, but in particular, I think the uh, R version. Now, I can't claim to have been on many car launches, really, but I did go on the launch of the uh, Volvo V70R. Uh, it was on the autobahns of Germany, so you could go mad. You could uh, uh, go as fast as you wanted to. And uh, it was quite interesting. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, you know, a couple of hundred um, horsepower, I think they're uh, 265 BHP. Um, and that would seem to be a very uh, uneconomical but quick way to get your antiques uh, from one end of the country to the other. So I think Lovejoy might uh, appreciate that. Uh, I know he's used to having, uh, or as you said, it's not really Love Lovejoy, but somebody like uh, Lovejoy who uh, uh, quite possibly had uh, a traveller uh morris minor but uh yeah i found one because what you explained to me the other day because i always thought i could keep the uh, difference and uh, you explained to me the other day that i couldn't um so uh i've i've spent most of it uh on a 1999 uh volvo v70r um with seventy six thousand miles which is quite low for a volvo all volvos of that era seem to be on a, a million miles uh at nine six five oh it seemed to be very very tidy and in decent condition. So uh, that's uh, my uh, modest submission. Uh, but I'm sure you've beaten it, David. Well, I found what I think is an absolute gem, mm. purely by chance. And it's a 1997 mm. BMW 323i E36 Touring with an automatic gearbox. That's £3,000. It's on car and classic. Mm. And believe it or not, it's also done 76,000 miles. Goodness me. The advert says it is a full service history. Full yep. leather, it's a tan leather, mm. air conditioning. Said to look and drive amazing, no rest anywhere. And again, the photographs, it does seem to look as described. There was a Cat D in the past, it says, due to front bumper and bonnet damage, but there's no structural damage at all, no signs of repair. And I've looked at it, oh, that's a really nice looking car. And then I looked at the MOT history, 
and it goes way back, of course, to I think 2005. Mm. And I think there's no evidence it's ever failed an MOT in that time. I think it's only one advisory once for something like a tyre. Mm. And you think that car was definitely not built on a Friday afternoon or Monday morning mm. and probably has been very well looked after. It's a nice shade of red, a sort of uh, metallic Bordeaux colour. Um, is that Zinnabar red, the BMW call it? I can't remember. I did, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it looks really good condition. And if I was in the market for a classic estate car, joking aside, I would certainly consider that one. Mm. Uh, in the photographs anyway, if the description is accurate and I have no reason to think that it isn't, then it looks fantastic. I have to yeah. say, engine bay is nice and clean. The interior looks lovely. Carpets at the back, the road area look great. Probably too nice to be an antique dealer's car, to be honest. Mm. This is maybe one to buy and cherish. Yeah. For that money, I mean, what else are you going to get, really? There's one more thing to do in this week's podcast, and that's to talk about a car we sort of mentioned a few weeks ago and what we're going to talk a bit more about. And due to some idiot, i.e. me, forgetting, we never did. And that was a car that you mentioned, James, called Bohanna Stables Nymph. And you were going to say what an ugly car it was, weren't you? I did. And uh, I'll, I'll stand by that. That's my hill to die on uh, today. Mm. Uh, but you're gonna put, <laughs> but you're going to put me right, uh, David, because you know the full exciting story. I know a fair bit about the story. Mm. I, don't, I don't know every nuance of it, mm. but it was designed and built by uh, a couple of people who were real um, real car guys. Peter Bohanna came from a boat building background, but he then went to work for various companies. I think he worked for Lola at one point, and he met up with a chap called Robin Stables, who was a sort of design engineer, who also at one point worked for Lola. Around about the year of the T70, they joined forces and designed a sports car, mid-engine sports car, called the Diablo. And they built it themselves. They got the chassis fabricated, designed the body. The only one was ever made because AC bought it and it turned into the AC 3000 ME, even though it was very unlike what Bohannon Stables had come up with. Only the basic shape remained. Anyway, Bohannon Stables went to work with AC for a time as consultants. But they moved on and decided to create what was effectively a British equivalent of the Miari or if you like, their version of the Moke. There was a car called the Nymph, uh, an open car which you could cover over, um, rear-engine because it was based in Imp Mechanicals and Imp Chassis. Uh, it was featured in Hot Car magazine that you're fond of, James. Um, oh, there was a fairly substantial article in Hot Car about it, um, an article about somebody who'd built one mm. uh, back in the day telling you what he had done to the car and where he'd got the parts. And it's all very interesting. That was the idea. You could build this car, you could buy it as a kit, you built, you built a rusty old imp, got some essential parts off it, stuck this nice new shiny fiberglass body on it, did a bit of work to it, and lo and behold, you had a nice lightweight um, utility vehicle. You know, really a buggy, I suppose you could describe mm. it as in a way. Obviously, it was using tried and trusted mechanicals. It should have been a success. It wasn't expensive to buy. Um, it was built in Britain. I think they were produced down near High Wycombe. Mm. Um, but here's the rub. There was an order allegedly came in from Chrysler for several thousand of them. Now, I don't know the exact figures. I'm waiting for a certain gentleman to get back in touch with me who may be able to tell me that answer. But one figure is 10,000, another figure is 4,000, which would have you know completely transformed the fortunes of Bohanna Stables. Unfortunately, around about that time, Chrysler USA seems to have decided to get rid of the imp. So with no car to base it on, Chrysler decided not to proceed with the order. I don't think it was actually all signed, but there had been discussions about it. 
and you know the plan would have been to market it in warmer countries, where as a rival to this, you know, the mini moke and the miari. Mm-hmm. And in the end, only about forty six or forty seven of these uh, kits were made. Mm. Um, there are some still in the UK. There are some still on the road, and um, I did write a piece about it for a magazine a few years ago. Um, and it's a very interesting story. Um, it seems to have been the swan song for stables and Bohana in the motor industry, though. They went and did other things. I know Peter Bohanna mm-hmm. was involved in um, a project to cross the Atlantic by a balloon in about 1980 or so. Uh, I think it was sponsored by ICI. If you look that up, it's quite interesting. You'll see his name attached to it. Oh, and he okay. then he was involved. Uh, he made props for films as well. So there we have it. The Bohanna Stables Nymph. If you get a chance to buy one, they'd probably take it because they're mm. so rare. But the running gear is standard Hillman Nymph running gear. Um, you shouldn't have any trouble getting that. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun and funky little vehicle. Best used in dry days, obviously, and best used in the summer. But it's certainly very different, James. No, that, I, no I, can't, uh, I can't argue with that at all. And its looks are... Interesting. Yeah, different. It mm. definitely looks different. Again, because it's based on another vehicle, there's only so far you can go with the looks. There's only so many changes you can make to it before you get into serious re-engineering, yeah. which you know, a small company wouldn't have the, the financial clout to do. No, that's right. But they made it look sufficiently different to the imp um, to give it a personality and a flavour of its own. Yeah. But it does what it says on the tin. It's a fun, funky little car. I like it. I've never driven one, sadly. But uh, from what I've seen and what I've read of it, I definitely uh, rather like it myself. But again, I'm a fan of the Miari, as you know, and I would be a fan of the Mini Moke, except I can't fit in the blasted thing. Mm. don't know if I can fit in the Nymphile, mind you. Well, I think we should com- compile a list of the cars you don't fit into, David's. Could be quite a long list. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, even a Volvo Estate. Mm. I did. I could drive it, but there was no blooming legroom. I'm beginning to think that you do make a fuss, and maybe this is for attention. But uh, no, 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 no. I like the quiet. I like the quiet life, old yeah. boy. I'm not the one who chases after Hammer Horror actresses and Bond girls, etc. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's right. You're well, the flamboyant one. <laughs> I've got to do something. I've got to. I've got to have a hobby in my old age. So. Uh, <laughs> I'll make it that. Yes. I just think you're naturally flamboyant, James, mm. that's all. I can imagine you back in the 70s with your you know, your platform soles and your flared yeah. trousers, et cetera, and your kipper tie. Yeah, Did you have a kipper tie? Yeah, oh, yeah. Everything everything was flared in the 70s. Um, Nostrils? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah hairdos. <laughs> yeah, shoes, was. flared shoes. Yes. Anyway, we're going completely off tangent as usual, as has become the custom in this podcast. Uh, it was originally about cars, but we're mm. not quite sure what it's about these days. Yeah, but, personal pers- personal abuse, I think, uh, David. It's descended into. But oh no, 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 no! I'm I'm being nice on it. I'm always mm. nice on it. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, as ever. I uh, hope that you join us next week, and we hope that your preparations are well in store for Christmas. I'm reliably informed by Mister Ruppert that he is mm. not Santa Claus, but I'm not entirely sure that's the case. Maybe he'll tell us soon. Um, I well, I don't know about that, David, but uh, yeah, I'm off to uh, bother some Hammer Horror actresses, apparently. But uh, there you go, try try and find the, the surviving ones. <laughs> Cheerio! Cheerio, everybody. <laughs>